Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to come together as a family around your table. We get to come around your table and talk about you and talk about how you're working in our lives and what you're doing. And I pray that you would be active here this morning. We know you're here. You invited us to the table. Pray, Father, that the words that I share today would be helpful, would be encouraging. I pray, God, that you'd be present uh, in, our, in our listening. We thank you, Father, for your time and for your love. Amen. So I want to talk about some themes that I see in Scripture. Uh, the lectionary itself is not divinely inspired, but I think it was actually inspired by men and women who have thought long and hard about Scripture. So when we receive the lectionary, it's basically, it's a, if I'm not mistaken, it's a three-year cycle. So unlike many churches, the, the Anglican church will actually go through pretty much the entire Bible in a three-year cycle. It's pretty fascinating. And so when I think about that, and I think about how it's done, I feel like this is the word that we have to receive today. And we've got to chew on it because it's the word we've got which is different than I want to do a seminar on, I don't know, love and marriage. That's good, but it may not be what we need to hear today. So this is what we've got today. So in looking at this, I see some threads. There's some commonalities. There's some binding agents through these scriptures this morning. I see themes of slavery, salvation, liberation, journey and desert. I see promised land, resurrection. I see relationship. That's what I see in these passages as we go through them. I want to get you to and start us with the Isaiah passage because I think it's a good place to start. That Isaiah passage in 43, 16 through 21, it's, it's a thumbnail history of Israel. It's a reminder of God's miraculous provision it talks about escape from Israel, pardon me, from, from slavery and from Egypt. It speaks about the baptism that the children of Israel received in the Red Sea, how the old is gone and the new is come. A new thing is happening. God says to the people of Israel, I give you me. I give you the great I am. But in order to receive this, in order to receive this gift, you've got to learn to listen. You've got to learn to heed my voice. You've got to learn to recognize me. So we've got to walk together. We've got to walk together through the desert. Israel was sustained in the desert. They were given provision, manna. They were given water, miraculously. When they complained, they even got meat. And it's interesting that Isaiah is, is telling this story. He's looking back, but he's speaking to a present time. He's speaking to Israel in his day and, say, and says, remember? Remember the goodness of God? Remember how he provided for you? Remember that even if you wouldn't praise him, which is all he asked, even the animals would. At least the beasts know what they're supposed to do. That's all he wanted was praise. 
But instead, golden calves leap out of fires. They demand worship instead. The God of Israel, El Elohei Elohim El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh, was cast aside like last year's most needed Christmas present. Forgotten. That's Isaiah's message. His message is you've forgotten your first love. So the theme, the thread continues. It continues through to the psalm, Psalm 126, where he talks about, again, time in the desert. Like waters in the Negev. The Negev, it's a desert. Who brings the waters in the desert? God brings the waters in the desert. So just like we have to have pain before the birth and new life, so too we've got to endure suffering before we can have restoration. Before we can be made whole, we have to be broken. It's a natural and necessary antecedent. I wanted to use that word. I thought it was fancy. We've all got to earn a degree from the school of suffering. Only then can we enjoy the laughter of the reaping. This psalm has particular significance for me. I associate it with my daughter, Sadie, who's been basically suffering with Lyme disease, which you can tell me if it's real or not, but she's got it, um, since seventh grade. She's 19 now, and we still don't have, she's a lot better, so there's giggles, maybe not full laughter, um, but we see it, we suffer. What's unique, or I shouldn't use that word right yet, uh, one of the, the universalities about suffer, suffering is that we all do it, right? The fact that we suffer is not unique, right? But the way that we suffer is deeply unique. You have burdens, you have problems, you have pains I can't even plumb the depths of. They're yours. And they're real. We can complain or suffer about our spouse, that we don't have one, or that we have the one that we have. We can complain about our jobs, our lack of money, our lack of hope. We can bemoan our relationships that are broken or that we want. Our physical bodies, they, they they break down and they cheat us and they lie to us. But they're the bodies we got. We suffer. And suffering, you know, is one of these deals where it's, it's not, you know, in America we're all about, and I love America, don't get me wrong, we're all about the quick fix. It's a lie. Because the Christian walk is a walk of transformation that takes place over decades. 
you don't get to be a saint overnight. It's a plodding, slogging. It's hard. You know, you know your children. You, you, you pray for your children. You, you yearn for their t- to come to God. Sometimes they don't. That's suffering. When you have a loved one who's endured physical pain for years, and if, if you could, you would take it away. And God lets you sit with it. And he still says, I'm God. And I still love you in spite of the pain. I love you through the pain. So why is suffering so key, so fundamental? Why do we have to go through all this, right? I just want it easy. This isn't what I put in for. I believe it's because we need to have our hearts expanded. Suffering creates room in our hearts so that we can see others and ourselves in a new way. It has a way of burning the chaff of needless pursuits, distractions, and selfishness. Suffering humbles you. It teaches you that you are small, that you are insignificant, and you are unable to do it on your own. Suffering at its best shapes us and aligns our hearts to be more like God's. We must stop striving. We must be still. We must learn to throw in the towel, surrender. Then, then only in the quietness and expectancy of our solitary pain can we receive God. Only then can we hear his still small voice. God comes to us in the middle of our anguish and he speaks with a gentle and loving word. Come. Come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and light. We need pain because it humiliates us. We can only recognize then our brokenness and our deep need for God because the sacrifices of God our broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Suffering endured and shared communally, it actually oddly binds us together. It knits us together so we become finely woven You know this. You've seen examples of this. Anyone who's graduated from a school knows the the unity of the class that survived the, the awful teacher, right? We all know in college those late night conversations over coffee or other things, how you were bound by that, that koinonia, that fellowship. 
If you've ever been in the military, there's a particular bond that occurs there of having gone through boot camp together and you, we survived. There's something about shared suffering that just rehumanizes us, oddly. You'd think it'd do the opposite, but it doesn't. In fact, with deep friendships or friendships over years, you can see in some ways the folks that you've suffered with, they become more like family than your blood. I think this is a beautiful picture of the church. If we suffer together, we become family. Even currently, Vladimir Putin in his misguided steps has done what never happened before. Ukraine is more of a unified people than I've ever seen anywhere. It is only through this collective suffering that they've been able to define who they are. That sounds like a message the church needs to heed. So this posture of humility, it is not easily attained and it is not easily maintained. And that leads us to our gospel passage, which is an object lesson in the lack of humility in Luke 20. But first I want to talk a little bit about the orientation of God towards us. So in Luke 20, there's been stuff going on. What's happening before Jesus comes to the temple to preach is he's approaching Jerusalem. And as he's approaching Jerusalem, there's this Luke captures it, but I think Matthew even gets it better. He's literally weeping. They call it the lament over Jerusalem. Jesus looks at this city and he basically says, I love you so desperately. I want to be like a mother hen that's covering its brood with its wings so I can protect you and show you that I love you. And then he goes to the temple and he cleans it out. It doesn't seem like love, does it? It's violence, it's anger. But it's righteousness. Pure righteousness from the king himself. And so he's at the temple. His orientation is to love. And he's at the temple. And he's there and he's contending with the chief priests and the elders who are denying again his divinity. They can't accept it. So, the passage that he's referring to or this parable, it doesn't come from nowhere. It's not something that he just came up with on his own. Jesus was, to say the least, a biblical scholar. The passage that he's looking at is from Isaiah chapter 5. And this is what this Isaiah chapter says. What's kind of cool, and I haven't done this most of my Christian life. It's only, you know, actually pretty recently. But when Jesus is quoting or talking about scripture, it's really cool to kind of go back and actually read the prophecy that he's referring to. 
it'll kind of give you more of a context than you can ever get just reading what he says. So this is what the Isaiah passage says that he's talking about when he talks about this vineyard. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed it out and hewed out a, a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also commend the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The men that he was speaking to, they knew their Bible too. And they knew that this was Jesus talking about Israel. The vineyard is Israel. And they knew that this was a parable directly against them. He's kind of given them, pardon my language, the finger in a very not so subtle way. Sticking their nose in it. You, chief priests, you elders, you have, have broken the vineyard. You've not been faithful. Now, the other thing is, we can always, it's always fun to sort of step back and point the finger at somebody else. But guess what? We're also the tenants too. It's not just them. It's us as well. So the story ends with the death of the son in the parable. And then Jesus, without missing a beat, goes right into this language about stones and brokenness and and capstones and, and that language is also out of the Old Testament. Isaiah again as well as Daniel. And that Isaiah passage that he's referring to, they, they refer to, the, Isaiah speaks about a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. He's referring to himself. The Daniel passage that he refers to when it talks about is in Daniel, you might remember there was that, that image of um, a, a, a statue that was made of clay that had silver, gold, bronze, and this stone uncreated by man comes and dashes and breaks 
the feet of that statue and it falls to the ground, that stone that was unhewn by any man was God. That was God's creation, God's stone, God's truth. It destroys the kingdoms of men. Jesus is the stone that destroys the kingdoms of men. Either they are crushed by it or they fall upon it and are broken. So Andrew and I, Andrew and I were talking about this and I was, where I was sort of having fun with it saying, is it better to fall on the stone and be broken or is it better to get crushed by the stone? I think we both agreed it's better to fall on the stone and be broken than to be crushed. I think there's something redemptive in that, in the being broken part, because when you're broken, then you can be reformed. You can be put back together. Jesus can put you back together. And you become a new creation, a new creature. These were deeply offensive words that were shared with the elders and chief priests. They were blind and they could not see. They were deaf and they could not hear. They could not see the Messiah because they valued their positions and their concepts of what God must be like more than the incarnate truth that stood before them. It makes you wonder if Christ were in front of us here today, would we recognize him? And if we did, would we follow him or would we yell crucify? There's a better way. There's a better path. I don't want to leave you there. Paul presents us with a path worth considering. It's that Philippians 3 passage. It's beautiful language. When we read that and you hear those words, it sounds to me that Paul can call suffering a boon companion or a friend. Paul knows what it's like to walk in the desert. He was beaten countless times. He was imprisoned many times. He was blinded near death. He received the 40 lashes less one five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea, cold, hungry, alone, anxious, perhaps even depressed from time to time. Just like you and me. And yet, he can still say, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, we had fun with this word, Andrew and I. He's smarter than I am. And the word, the Greek word there is skubalon. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Basically, it means animal poop. Dung. Really unclean for a righteous Jew, right? In the valley, we would use a much shorter word to describe that. <laughs> the point is, right? The point is, the goal, the arc of Paul's entire life was Christ. 
Knowing Christ, knowing Jesus was the point and purpose. Not in an arm's length legal transaction, not in a legal way. That failed, continues to fail, and will always fail. But through relationship and faith. Faith is not just conformity, it is life. It embraces all the realms of life, penetrating into the, into the most mysterious and inaccessible depths, not only of our unknown spiritual being, but even of God's own mysterious, pardon me, hidden essence and love. Faith, then, is the only way of opening up the true depths of reality, even of our own reality. Until a man yields himself to God in the consent of total belief, he must inevitably remain a stranger to himself. Thomas Merton, not me. So this path, this path of faith, this path of suffering, sorry, I'm on uneven ground here. This path through the desert is painful. It hurts. It feels like discipline, like a divine spanking. But we rest in the knowledge that God disciplines those he loves. And that as we take up our crosses in the season of Lent and stumble forward through the desert, hoping towards the promised land of resurrection and new life, Jesus comes to us. He walks beside us and he asks for our burdens. He offers bread and wine, which is better than water and manna, in my opinion. He offers himself. Would we but yield to him? Let's pray. O Father in heaven, who didst fashion my limbs to serve thee and my soul to follow hard after thee with sorrow and contrition of heart, I acknowledge before thee the faults and failures of the day that is now passing. Too long, O Father, have I tried thy patience. Too often have I betrayed the sacred trust thou hast given me to keep. Yet thou art still willing that I should come to thee in lowliness of heart, as now I do, beseeching me thee to drown my transgressions in the sea of thine own infinite love, my failure to be true even to my own accepted standards, my self-deception in face of temptation, my choosing of the worse when I know the better, O Lord, forgive my failure to apply to myself the standards of conduct I demand of others, my blindness to the suffering of others, and my slowness to be taught by my own, my complacence towards wrongs that do not touch my own case, and my oversensitiveness to those that do, my slowness to see the good in my fellows and to see the evil in myself, my hardness of heart toward my neighbor's faults and my readiness to make allowances for my own, 
my unwillingness to believe that thou hast called me to a small work and my brother to a great one. O Lord, forgive. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and give me the strength of a willing spirit. Amen. Amen.